The Beatles, known as the Fab Four, are regarded by many as the most influential band of all time. The Beatles were comprised of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison. But do you know who the fourth Beatle is? Yes, Ringo Starr. Ringo was the Beatle that some say was least known, but was a major factor in their success and an amazing drummer. I would argue that there was an original professional learning communities at work Fab Four. Rick DeFore and Bob Aker were the original architects, and shortly after, they added Becky DeFore. But there was a fourth, and I call him the Ringo star of the PLC at Work movement, as he has gone about being a star in his own right, but like Ringo, isn't always as recognized. But when it comes to influence, he has to be right up there. His name is Tom Maney. With Bob Aker and the late Rick and Becky DeFore, Tom co-authored The First Learning by Doing, a handbook for professional learning communities at work, one of the best-selling education books in the history of our profession. Tom has been the author, co-author, or contributing author on 10 books and nearly 100 articles and he has delivered over 1,000 workshops, keynotes, or coaching sessions as a consultant. Tom is a retired superintendent and has held many positions in our profession during his career, including assistant superintendent, principal, elementary classroom teacher, freshman basketball coach, and as well, he has received numerous awards and commendations throughout his illustrious career. I could go on and on and on about Dr. Maney. It's an absolute honor and thrill to have education's version of Ringo Starr join me today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Dr. Tom Maney. Tom, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's really great to see you. Um, at the beginning of each one of my shows, Tom, I, I want my audience to get to know uh, my guests a little bit better. And so what I do is I ask my guests to share as much as they feel comfortable with um, their personal story, their professional journey. And so as we begin a conversation with Brian, who is Tom Maney? <laughs> well, that... That beginning clip about the Beatles and Ringo, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about that and uh, I thought, well, geez, we have some other Fab Fours. We could go with uh, like Mount Rushmore and uh, <laughs> Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, or uh, maybe Seinfeld, Kramer, and uh, George, Jerry, and Elaine, or, or uh, maybe yeah. Wizard of Oz with Dorothy the Lion. Scarecrow and Tin Man. I don't know. We have a lot of Fab Fours, huh? A lot of Fab Fours, but I remember a story. And I think it, it's relevant here to who I am. I remember a story about uh, that I was told that there were these four great philosophers um, in the room, Plato, Socrates, uh, Aristotle, and Pythagoras. And they were all talking. And of course, everybody knows um, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. 
you know, they're, they're really famous, sure. but not very many people might know um, Pythagoras, except if you're a mathematician. Pythagoras, you know, he was the one who came up with the Pythagorean theorem. Yep. So while he might not be as well known, he certainly had a contribution. Sure. And, um, interestingly enough, the person who told me that story was Rick DeFore. Really? And uh, it's always stuck with me. You know, they never, they never made me feel less in any, any way. Rick, Becky, and Bob were, were the most amazing, most inclusive, um, you know, mentors and colleagues that you, you could imagine. So right. I feel really blessed to have, have been a part of, of that, that group. And so if I'm Ringo, that's a compliment, high compliment, I take no, it. it, it, it popped into my head one day and I think I mentioned it to you and I and, and it was a compliment because I think um a lot of times they did get the 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 attention but you a lot you know many times you know, you're either behind the scenes or you're writing with them or you're you're out out front as well but um I think your personality lends to just you know you you remind me of the 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 Denver Nuggets who just won you remind me of the Joker although he's you know the best player but the 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 humbleness, the humility that he's always wanting to give credit to everybody else. And that's who you remind me of. I, I um, have this book over my shoulder, um, Yes, We Can, and some of your colleagues, people you mentored, um, give you such big props because of who you are. And, and you don't do that as much. And so I wanted to have you come on because I really wanted people to, to see you, to, to learn about you and to hear your story, but also to to, to really, you know, kind of get a feel for all the things that you have done in education, all the articles that you've written, the books that you've written, and how you inf have influenced so many people, including me. Oh, thank you, Brian. Well, I, I and like I said, I, I feel really blessed and very grateful, full of gratitude to be associated with the three of them. Uh, they're amazing people. Um, I never thought it was about who was best. Sure. I always thought it was more important the company you keep. Yeah, that you'd be known by the company you keep. And um, even as a superintendent, um, I always thought that the best way I could contribute was to uh, recruit and mentor people. And sure. uh, you may know some of them. I mean, uh, Julie Schmidt was on the staff. Jeannie Spiller was there. Heather Frizzell has been on your show. I know she she was part of the team there. Uh, Barb Sergliano was there. I'm, I'm probably going to forget somebody. Um, Chris Jackasick was was huge part of the district success but i always felt like um that was a way that i contribute it didn't have to be about me sure but we wanted the organization to be successful so um yeah I, I think um i think i've tried to i know i've contributed i, I know i have made helped make a difference <clears throat> but it's not ever something i've sought out um rick and bob they love being up on they they love that stuff they just crave it and boy when i get off the stage of keynote I'm drained so yeah. it's, all, it's all in who you are and sure. make your own contributions along the way so let's go back a little bit um because I want to kind of start with the beginning if, if you could talk a little bit about your personal journey or, or professional story in terms of you know how did you get into education and, and when you were younger were you a good student did, did did you know was this the path that you always thought that you'd be on no no um, both of my parents are college professors, and I said I was going to do anything except teach. <laughs> um, and I had four majors to prove it before education. And finally, really? Yeah. Finally, when my grades were horrible and things weren't going very well, my father sent me down and said, son, figure it out. 
or go to Europe and figure it out, you know, do something, yeah, do something but this, yeah. isn't, this isn't working right now. So right. I, I um, uh, got into education and found out that I really enjoyed it, really loved it. And my first passion, I thought I would go, um, I wasn't a very good athlete, but I, but I loved sports. So I thought I would go and be a high school basketball coach. Yeah. And that will, that will pop up as, as being significant later on, but um, you know, that was the reason that I got into to teaching. It wasn't maybe the normal motivation, but then when I got into it, I found out that, you know, it was really rewarding and we could make a difference. And so um, that really, that's really what drove me. When you, when you first started, because now things, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But on the other hand, when you first started, it's, it was back in the late seventies, right? As a classroom teacher, um, and this idea of collaboration wasn't really the norm back then, but was it the norm in your school or did you have it, this like kind of this angst to make sure that you were working with other people because you knew that was the best, you know, thing for kids or was it just, they just threw you in as a teacher sink or swim? No, I, my first, um, first position, um, we had, it was at the elementary level, believe it or not. I, I had uh, just graduated and I'd read a report on why Johnny can't read. My mother actually had her doctorate reading. So really drawn to that and said, you know what? I'm going to go to the elementary level. I, I had a chance to go to the high school level, but sure. I'm going to go to the elementary level and really try and make a difference for these kids. And so the first um, assignment was in one of those open classrooms. It looked like yes. one of the big box stores, Walmart, Kmart, whatever. Exactly. Uh, no walls, nothing. And yeah. there were four of us that were just dropped together um and uh on top of that two of them taught second grade and two of us taught third grade so we actually said one of the people said you know what let's just multi-age this let's just wow. take kids where they are and so th i've never that was my wow. first experience and that was pretty impactful that's amazing and through the years and you know working with that team i began to understand that um you know, we were much more effective when we were together, when we were, when we, were, we weren't, we were apart, separate. Sure. And so I think that probably stuck with me um, without even really knowing. Yeah. Yeah. After that, where'd you go after um, that experience? I went on to be um, an elementary principal. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I went on to be a curriculum supervisor for a couple of years. Um, and that's where I got my passion because I came to the superintendency through the curriculum side of the office. Yeah. through the financial side of the office, which actually in the end was a big advantage for this work. Sure. Um, but uh, became an, a curriculum supervisor and then an elementary principal um, and then assistant superintendent uh, for curriculum instruction and then went on to be a superintendent um, at age, I think, 34, 35. At that time, it, there were, uh, I, was one, I was the youngest superintendent in the state of only there were five people that were that age in this whole wow. state. Um, and never was a plan. It just kept happening. Um, and Rick, surprisingly, um, Rick was really a big part of my professional life from the very early years. Um, he was a principal at Stevenson when I was a principal in District 96. Okay. And we just started talking. And can you imagine what it would be like to um, go to lunch with him you know, a couple times a month, pick up the phone and just call him? you know, just get into the conversations we had that later set up his thinking around learning by doing and all of that work, he and Bob, looking back on it, 
I, again, I was just blessed, just just lucky as hell to be able to work with Rick. You know, I think, and again, you being modest, I'm think, I, I think, you know, if Rick were here today, he would say the same, same about you, that he learned a lot from you as well. I mean, I think, you know, Rick talks about or talked about, you know, as he, as he you know, created this model with, with Bob, how many people he learned from along the way. It wasn't just him. It was like how, you know, you know, picking ideas from other people. And so I think, uh, again, you're being modest, but I think he, he would say the same thing. Hey, let's go back to when you were an elementary principal. Mm -hmm. um, when when you worked to set up your school, and as you you talked a little bit about it when you said that you you worked with three other teachers in this open school you know model, which really kind of made you all collaborate. Did you set your school up in that way, um, or and or did you have resistance from some of the veteran teachers to um, to work in that way? Um. We had teams and yeah. what we did a little bit different than the previous um, principle there was we met, um, you know, weekly. I met with it because I was a first year principal. I was just a basically, you know, a brand new rookie, whatever. Yeah. And I needed to learn from them. And I thought the sure. best way to learn was to learn from others. And so I had them choose somebody as a representative, not a leader, not a team right. leader, just a representative. Yeah. And then we would meet uh, once a week and talk and plan and coordinate. And, you know, that's when things like um, the lack of coordination vertically amongst the teams became real obvious. That's where um, it became real obvious the, the way they worked with kids were so different and the kids had different experiences depending on the teacher that they got. And, right. you know, that didn't feel right to me. And so we, we started working through a lot of those things again pretty unconsciously working toward um, the whole idea of being collaborative. Right. But I'm, I'm most comfortable in collaborative. If you notice, um, all those books and most of the articles yeah. are not solos. Yeah. I may have been a, a lead author on it, but you know, none of them, were, they were all collaborative efforts. I feel most comfortable there. Yeah. Did, did that happen? Because I know, and when I was reading your resume, um, you coached um, ninth grade basketball <laughs> and and that experience in, in, for me as well when I when I coached um, early on in my career and again play, playing basketball playing team sports for me when I you know got into education it, it just seemed like it was just a natural kind of you know kind of organic flow of what it should look like but it wasn't what it looked like when I first started um, mm -hmm. in terms of the collaboration. I mean, we had great people, people who worked hard, they cared deep, deeply about kids, but there wasn't this idea that we had to be in the room learning from each other. And so when you coached, um, did you use some of what you coached um, in your work um, in schools? Very much. In fact, um, that's, again, without really realizing it, that's what's led to my real passion around this work. I mean, I love the PLC process and I'm absolutely convinced. I got, I brought this, I bet you not many people have seen this. Yep. This was the first edition, the gray edition, which, yeah. you know, and it's signed by Rick. I've got Rick's wow. signature. I mean- that's, that's 1998, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, but anyway, um, it's led me really to that passion about the PLC process. Yeah. Um, you you played basketball at a really high level. You played at the professional level. Um, you played with some amazing athletes. I mean, um, one of my favorite 
I'm from Chicago, one of my favorite Chicago Bulls. You played with him and like Brown. We're still yeah. very good friends with him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my question back to you might be, if I can turn the table just for a second here, is um, did, was it all natural to you or did, did someone coach you up? Oh, there's always a coach who coaches you up, you know, and, and so th there is this, this um, want to work as a team for the, the greater good, but you have to have somebody who sees either something in you has somebody sees something that you may be quote lacking that they need to support so you can get better um share what your strengths are and so all those things you you need somebody to be able to you know bring out the best in you so a professional basketball player some of the who played with some of the greatest players that played basketball right coaching matters yeah was it more um powerful if it was coaching individually, which I'm sure made a difference, or collectively? Where did you have the greatest success? Well, of course, we had the greatest success collectively. You know, you're going to work on your individual skills. But in terms of having this synergy, you have to be able to be coached as a team in order for you all to learn from each other. Like my the, the coach may be um, coaching me individually, but if, I, if we're at a, in a team setting, if they're coaching, you know, others at the same time, then I'm learning myself. I'm learning actually from the strengths of my teammates. I'm learning that they're going to cover for me if I need, you know, some support. So, yeah. So take all that yep. and think about the PLC process. PLC process is built, the foundation, the driving force, the engine that drive, is built on teams. Yep. Exactly. Yet the way we deliver the help to teachers to help them get better is primarily through workshops yeah. and seminars and, and stand and deliver kind of things and transferring that learning to the classroom is a lot harder than it looks. Yeah. And I think the key is just what we've been talking about. I think there that we need to, and that's my passion, is shift to coaching our teams sure. around the PLC process, yeah. help them get better. Because most, well, let me ask you, what's most of the feedback that teachers get at school? It's mostly through the evaluation process. Yeah, and so, and that's that's one of those things that, you know, it just reminds me when you say that, uh, it reminds me of the the article that, that Rick and Mike uh, Matos wrote, you know, how do principals really improve schools? And, it, and, and I, this has always been my passion. I've always been transparent with my staff, I will say to them, when I come into my your classroom and just regurgitate what, what I see, that's not making you better. It's mm -hmm. not, you know? And so we're gonna, you know, improve your practices through that team culture and that coaching process. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it, it's so important for us to, to, I know it's a necessary evil because it's in, everybody has to do the evaluation process and the observation process and, we have to say, okay, we're going to do that, but this is where we're going to get our biggest bang for our buck. Right. Yeah. Most, most of the feedback that teachers get through the evaluation process is mostly judgmental. It's mostly this yeah. is what we need to do better in the best case, or maybe this is what you did wrong in some other cases, right? But um, rarely is it because it's it's um, because it's so judgmental, it's not going to help them very much. I've always argued that if we spent a lot more time with our faculty and talked about 
Um, you've heard me say it. It's not what's wrong. It's what's next. Sure. What's next? This is where we are. What's next? And keep yeah. that momentum moving forward. Yeah. I think instead of talking about what's wrong, we talk about what's next. And we and people say, well, coaching's so expensive, Tom. Well, coaching is a big commitment. It is. We know it works though. Way back, Joyce and Showers work in the 80s. Way back then, we you know they clearly prove over and over and over again since then, other researchers that if you leave it at the workshop, conference, reading articles, you know, that, that awareness level, I mean, that's a necessary but insufficient condition to change practice. Yeah. You have to coach. So if coaching maybe feels like financially it's a bit of a stretch, well, coach teams, you triple or quadruple your impact. And here's the other thing too. I'm curious about your experience. Did you ever get feedback from your teammates about how it was going and how you as a group might be more effective on the floor? Did you ever improvise and maybe come off? Do you, do you see the chatter that happens in a game, just in a game and that happens in practice, but I know you're a big, you know, Blackhawks fan. There's Mm -hmm. chatter constantly talk constantly and they're always improvising, right? They're always changing. Right. Um, And so because of that feedback that they're getting immediately on the floor or on the ice. So guess what? Um, guess where the number one place is that teachers go to get ideas to improve their practice? It's not the principal. It's not a trusted coach. It's one another. Yeah. They're four times more likely to go to their colleague than the principal. They're twice as likely to go to a colleague as, as, as a trusted coach. So yeah. if you think about where do we want to create the most synergy, the most energy around professional practice, it's at the team level. Yeah. So again, if you want to move your school, Coach your teams. Yeah. Coach your teams. Yeah. We did some, some really interesting research. Um, University of Colorado uh, did some research on a coaching project, and the results were phenomenal. Um, the teams that were coached move further faster than teams that weren't. Yeah. And then in another setting, the principal had chosen PLCs as their um, improvement initiative. Mm-hmm. The whole school improved. Of course. But the two teams that were coached proved far more than everybody else yeah so if we really want to make an impact around professional learning communities which obviously i'm passionate about yeah you can hear in your voice we've got to start investing in structures that allow us to coach our teams not individuals that's important and i know the coaching post will it'll make them a little crazy but and i don't think we should abandon coaching individuals right but as expert as you were at playing basketball, you still got a lot from coaching. So take our most expert teacher, they're still gonna benefit from coaching. It's not just for the newbies or the, the yeah. performers, it's for everybody. So that's kind of where my passion, and that goes all the way back to that freshman basketball experience. Yeah, All the way back there, I'm just so sorry it took me so long to figure it out. But that's that's experience, right? You you, you try something and then you, you, you reflect on it, right? And so, you only know what you know at the time as a freshman basketball coach, you only knew what you knew. How did, how do you get, um, and this is, this is part of that coaching framework, but there is a human element mm-hmm. and that human ele- element is sometimes a lack of trust, mm-hmm. uh, a lack of being, you know, willing to be vulnerable, um, uh, a lack of this willingness to, um, confront in a positive way, each other. How do you help people understand that? Because you can't coach people unless those things are in place. 
Yeah, and some of the big names have talked about that um, basically you have to be willing to be coached before they can coach you. Yeah. And I kind of think about that as, well, how do we treat kids? Do we only teach the kids that are willing to learn? Right. No, we find other ways. And so I think right. saying that we, if you're not willing to be coached, I'm not going to coach you. I think that's a cop-out. Right. I think, you know, I think Ken Williams always talks about, um, you know, we, we're not going to ignore best practice. Yeah. We know best practice in this group. So, you know, we need to coach even those that are not interested. And I think there's a, a big opportunity for somebody to delve into this notion of being coachable. Because I'll bet you played with folks that were more or less coachable. Yeah, yeah you know what? I think, Tom, what happens is um, we, we can say somebody was less coachable, but I don't think they were less coachable. I think that, that we have to get to know them in a way that allows us to coach them. And so we have to build relationships because I have to you know, be honest, we have 12 people on my team, 12 players. The coaches didn't treat everybody the same. They treated us fairly, but they knew how to coach each person. So that relationship piece is huge. And so that's on the coaches, I think, is to build those relationships in order for them to say, okay, I need to do this with this this um, this uh, player, or I need to do that with that player. Um, because like you said, it's a cop-out to say that, co that that person is not coachable. That's on me to figure it out. Right, right, exactly. And so <clears throat> I, I think that um, the whole notion that we don't coach people that, aren't, aren't, that don't choose to be coached, they talk about agency and things like that. I think that's a cop-out. I think people, I think we need to commit to coaching people, commit to coaching teams, because the part of the PLC process is building shared knowledge and learning together. And, yep. and I don't know how many in-services you've ever been to where you went to learn how to implement a certain reading program or writing program or something like that. And then five years later, that changed. Okay. And yeah. it changed. okay? They're yeah. always changing. So my kind of sense is that going to those are less long-term powerful than really coaching up a team about how to collaborate because yeah. then whatever problem you give them, they will solve. Exactly. So the, the, the nexus of all of this, Bob Marzano once said, someone asked him a question. Um, if you're just starting a school, you know, what would you do? He said, I would um, lean on the PLC process. I'd create collaborative teams because I can put any, any topic into that group and they will, they will, figure out how to make it work for kids yeah so for me the whole notion of this of this the, I, I love the plc process it's fundamental it's foundational it it's at my core but i really think the opportunity to really advance the ball is going to be when we shift to coaching teams around their plc practice yeah yeah and then turn them loose yeah let's go back to um the book that's over my shoulder because i mentioned it at the beginning and it truly is one of the most impactful, influential books in the history of our profession, Learning mm -hmm. by Doing, and, and you were a part of writing that. Can you talk about the process when you first started writing that with Rick and Becky and Bob? Um, what, were, what was your thinking? Um, because it says a handbook, and that's not really something that you know was kind of prevalent when you wrote this book. There weren't a lot of handbooks. There were a lot of books that were about certain subjects, but this is a handbook where you're like, okay, this is something that we can use and we take to our, our, our team meetings. We take everywhere because there are tools and tips and, and, and other things that are, are really important for us to always have with us to refer to. And so why did you all make it a handbook? 
Well, I think that probably came from Rick and Bob. Um, when we first started out writing it, um, Rick would ask me for a thousand words on a particular topic. And so I do my best to write the best I could. And then when it came back, you know, Sundays, it wasn't, it was hardly recognizable because he had fixed it. You know, he, he, didn't it. But he, he never stopped giving me a chance to give me opportunity. And he would say, okay, give me a, give me a little bit on this, or, you know, a lot about this and write up something, some ideas on this and, and right. basically kept sending it to him. And then he would rework it um, partly to get into a, the same voice, but partly because I think he had in his mind a vision or probably he and Bob had a vision of what this handbook was going to look like. Sure. Rick told me one time that he believed, and I think this is a good, good way to think about it. He believed that learning by doing was really an a guide to an implementation of the PLC process. Yeah. And if you follow it, um, uh, you'll be successful. And I just saw something on Twitter off Mike Manos's one of his keynotes. Mm -hmm. They talked about if we want all kids to succeed, we have to ensure that our faculty implements all aspects of the PLC process. Yeah. You know well right and so that was the idea i think that the handbook and the the uh, breadth of it, it does, you know there's lots of books on plcs but none of them i think are quite as all-encompassing as learning by doing you know i i remember when i first learned about the the plc at work process and then i got learning by doing and then we we bought it for our entire entire staff and we had a book talk each team was responsible for a chapter and they had to present to the staff um coming back from summer break and it was probably as you had talked about you know you know what's our first step our first step is learning together you know building you know shared knowledge engaging in collective inquiry and so we're all on the same page and my goal was always to make sure we had common language common knowledge and common expectations because what I found um, in working with schools or working with districts is that there is so much misinformation or, or confusion that people get frustrated and they say, this doesn't work. And it's not the fact that it doesn't work, it's that they haven't built shared knowledge and learned together and move forward. Um, and so that's the same thing in terms of what you're talking about with coaching. How do we help people stay on the same page if they don't have the same understanding of what I'm supposed to do when I'm being coached. Right, right. And that's why I think learning by doing is such a powerful piece. And it links back directly to some of the later books, uh, like Amplify. Yeah. Amplify, we talk about writing a strategy implementation guide to SIG. And people think, what's that? Well, basically the SIG establishes your agreed upon standard of best PLC practice. Yeah. Everybody needs to know what they're shooting for. Right. We all have specific goals we're shooting for, whether it's basketball or life or school or whatever. So it sets that up. But but more importantly, what people don't realize that when you're developing that strategy implementation guide around what best PLC practice looks like, you're going doing all kinds of building shared knowledge. Yeah. You're developing a common vocabulary. Yep. You're agreed upon you know definitions of all the key terminology. The okay. act of writing the SIG is powerful PD. Yeah, that's just the whole process. Yeah. I remember, I remember Rick saying, and it's exactly what you're saying. I remember he said something like, you take people out of the work, you take them out of the learning. Yeah. 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 And so your SIG, that's what it does. And when I was reading, when I first read Amplify, I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And it, it really, the way you laid it out was just perfect. And just how you gave teams, you know, people the tools to, you know, work together and, and coach collaborative teams was amazing. But, but then you write two more. 
so so talk about your 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 thinking um in terms of uh after amplify you know the the need to to write another one and then then another one because they came pretty quickly after each other but but they they serve different purposes right um kind of always thought of it at least i always thought of a trilogy yeah um and amplify is mostly structure and structure is easier than culture yep. um, i've always admired anthony muhammad because i think he really gets it he does um, yeah and so structure is kind of the starting it's easier and that was an entry point right thrive was more about um the culture coaching culture that you mentioned earlier trying yeah. to create a coaching culture yeah um, that's really gonna actually drive the things and amplify right and the last thing was that we wanted to give people kind of like learning by doing a handbook for coaching teams and so you can take the energized book the third book and you yeah. can go um module by module by module each module in that book it contains background knowledge a pd activity to do within a faculty meeting within a short faculty meeting right follow-up activities for coaching you know and then and then it goes to the next one so each one of them is a self-contained um, topical pd on some aspect of the plc process and it links back to learning by doing it, it, it kind of completes that whole circle yeah I love that because again, you're giving again that that focus is this is our expectation. You, you can give the staff this tool at a staff meeting, professional learning session, and all the staff have access to it. You give them access to the information at the same time, they're going to more likely come to again the same conclusions around that topic or around that issue. And so I think your your trilogy, um, if you will, gives team staff districts those tools. Yeah, we've tried to uh, structure, culture, and then a, a way to to deliver that to to effect, get it out to people to help them. I I mean, I think there's more to write. I always think there's more to write. <laughs> um, um, but at least from that perspective, I think if people will look at the trilogy, if they'll get grounded in learning by doing and the frequently asked questions, concise answers, frequently those two that go together, yep. they get grounded in that. And then they begin to think about um, the coaching trilogy. I think the odds that they're going to be able to be successful with the PLC process go way up. Yeah. Hey, who were the people who were most influential along your way, um, personally and professionally? You know, why? If, if I were to give you truth, source, truth serum, <laughs> um, who were those people who who you would say, oh, that was a point or that was a point where those people really helped me out and or that was a time where I was kind of lost. But somebody said, you know, like, kind of like you said, your dad at the beginning, you know, how did you get to the point of where you are today? Um, and that term successful is used loosely. I mean, you, you're successful in a number of ways and we're all successful in different ways. But how did your your journey turn out? you know, to be where you are today. Um, and, and who were those people who, who were just that you note along the way? Because no, we can't do this, but there are no self-made people. Um, I think um, lots of them. Like I said, I really have been lucky. Um, I really feel like that old better to be lucky than good. Yes. Yeah. Fits for me. Yeah. Um, I've really been fortunate. Um, I can remember my first principal, Ron Gibson. He, he, without knowing it he just everybody worked together it was a collaborative 
Yeah. You know, the culture there. And he never was one to put himself above others. Yeah. He always was encouraging. He never was um, judgmental. The, the feedback you got really was, you know, what are you thinking now? Or sure. gosh, what are you going to do? And, you know, that kind of questioning. And, yeah. and it was just natural for him. He was great. One of my first teammates, um, you know, I'm this kid out just out of college. And, you know, she was really, really helpful to me in terms of, of figuring out what good teaching looked like and right. how to work with others. I think um, as I kind of went through, um, my colleagues along the way yeah. um, have been the ones, because I've always been open to learning. And sometimes I've been told that's a, that's a fault that I, um, that I'm not more, I don't think that's true. I think I'm pretty pr plenty prickly when I, with some of my colleagues, but for the most part, I've always been really open to learning from others. Yeah. And um, so I can't think, I mean, I just, those who inspire me, my son um, just graduated Northwestern, his residency program at Northwestern. Oh yeah, congratulations. Indianapolis in pediatric surgery. Um, medicine's a pretty um, nepotism. There's a lot of, you know, we heard in the speeches, a lot of like my father, my grandfather, research, all this stuff. He had yeah. none of that, yeah. none of it. He had, he had, you know, he'd do it on his own, but he never gave up. He kept working. He was constantly learning. And, and in the presentation speech where the head of the department introduced him, he was, he was the resident of the year, you know, for that group. But sure. um, when he introduced him, she, she and I had a brief conversation. She said, Ben's father told me that he really believes in learning by doing. I had, we had this conversation. Yeah. And Ben represents learning by doing he's constantly learning yeah. um, as a doctor and i thought you know what what a legacy you know yeah. i mean you really your legacy is really the people around you yeah whether it's yeah. all those people that we talked about before like julie and, and chris and heather sure. and Jeannie and Bar all those people or whether it's you know your, this, your son or whatever that gets on to make a difference for good it's really all about the people that you come in contact with so I can't tell you one person. I can just tell you that I've been one lucky guy to be able to work with a ton of great people. People like you, people like Mike and, and Anthony and Ken and you know, um, all those amazing, Tim Kano, all those amazing people. You know, we're all, we're, if we're smart and we pay attention, we're all lucky to be learning from our colleagues. Yeah, that was one of the things that I've been fortunate um, just in my career, because I, and I, I think I've shared this with you and I've shared it, you know, with a number of people, it, it, I've, I've always felt like I need to sit back most of the time and, and just soak it in. I, um, you know, I had a hard time learning how to read when I was younger. They wanted to retain me, but they didn't retain me because my dad was a reading teacher. So I, quote, had an interventionist at home. And so I was fortunate. I was, quote, built, born in the right family, right? Because, you know, if I was born in a different family, I have no idea what my trajectory would have been if they retained me or whatever. And so um, this idea of learning from some other people has always been just kind of natural to me because I always didn't have the confidence as a learner early on. Um, and sometimes I just feel like, you know, other people um, know more, not as much now, because I feel comfortable in my area. But I really think that that idea of, again, learning from the colleagues that I, you know, have, have um, 
you know, just work with or just, you know, experience along the way. Like you say, I feel like, I feel like the luckiest person in the world because I, it's like I have been dropped into these situations and I'm like, I get to sit here and talk with Tom Maney. I get to hear, you know, Anthony Muhammad's <laughs> on my next show. Um, Ken was on, you know, Heather was on. And so these people that I get to learn from have written books and have just really influenced, you know, not just a small area, but the entire world of education. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're, and I know that about you. You're very, you're, um, I love talking with you because you're so full of gratitude. And I think, um, more of that in the world, you know, would help us all. You know, well, uh, right. nobody does it all by themselves, no matter who they are or how great they think they are. They've had help along the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is it one single person? You know, I, you know, Rick probably had the biggest influence on me professionally, and and also people don't realize it personally. So, uh, but for me, it's it's bigger than that. It's um, you know, my wife is amazing. You know, I'm really lucky. Um, she's been a co-author with you she is really yeah she's I'm very fortunate so my kids you know every day is father's day when you have kids like mine right that's you feel the same way about your girls wonderful girls so yes hey let's turn to a different subject before we leave today all right let's get to sports okay your Blackhawks what's going on they're they're about a rock bottom I think I think they've gone from one of the greatest dynasties of the 2000s to they I think last year they were the worst or second worst team let's stop right there let's compare um I read in um one of your books and you talked about I think it was aligning PLCs as one of your quotes you said something like the difficulty of sustaining the the PLC at work model at the district-wide um should not be it that hard. And I think that's why you wrote the book. And so when we kind of, you know, connect that to the Blackhawks who were here at one point, the difficulty of sustaining that greatness, mm-hmm. is it because of change in leadership, change in philosophy, um, all the above, change in expectations? Why? Some of that, changing people, um, I think the culture changed. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and talk about culture and sports, you know, yeah. uh, the old story about the Chicago Cubs that, you know, they, their, their culture was a losing culture. You look up loser in the dictionary and there's a Cub fan. Yeah. That's a story yeah. that we, yeah. we always used to hear. But um, I think the culture changed. Um, I think the culture like around the Nuggets um, is pretty unique. Yeah. And um, my hope is that it will continue. But, you know, they, if a few of those norms, those cultural norms start to change, and you know, they won't be as successful. So- Do you think success, um, sometimes success is, there's so much pressure when you're successful that that you go the other way or or you kind of, it's kind of like flight or or freeze. I don't know the, the correct term, but it seems like, I think you you kind of said it, those cultural norms, um, because when you become successful, if you don't stay true to who you are, if you get a big head or you you think that you don't need to you know act in a certain way, the team's dynamics change. Yes. Yeah. 
And so as a leader, you know, like I said before, I always, I tried, um, I didn't probably articulate it very well, but I really tried to watch the relationships between among the, 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 the leaders, because I really felt like the, the relationships that we would model um, in our administrative council, you know, in that group were the kind of relationships they were going to model when they went back to their building. And guys like Greg Grana, who was principal at Woodlawn Middle School, and they were uh, yeah. the DeFore Award winner. He's a perfect example. I mean, that guy, when, when I came to tell him I was, would like to move into the principalship, he said, well, I'm a gym teacher. I don't know anything about it. I said, you know how to get people to work together. That's, yeah. And that's the most important skill set. And he, he's gifted at that. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think you said, it, you said it earlier, those relationships, monitoring those relationships, tending to them, um, you know, making sure that the right balance, sometimes you, you get stronger by removing a piece. Yeah. And yeah. a leader has to be willing to say, you know, I'm going to have you go do something different because Perfect. I need it. Yeah. Um, but I really think that's the key to whether it's sports or schools. And that's why I keep coming back circle around to, you know, we got to start coaching teams because I teams sports are great. They're important, but isn't student learning important? It, it, I mean, it's critical, right? We go around, we say coaching is so expensive. Well, isn't, how would you like to go in front of the board and say all these tens of thousands of dollars we spent to send people off to all these trainings and it didn't work. Yeah. That's expensive. All these different initiatives that come and go are expensive, right? That's expensive. So to, to me, it, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Um, I just, like I said, I'm sorry it took me so darn long to figure out what really mattered. We're glad it, it, it um, you, we're glad, we're glad you figured it out. Hey, Chicago uh, Cubs or White Sox? White Sox. Really? Oh yeah. Dad was, we um, grew up as young kids in New York and dad was a Yankee fan. Okay. So when he came to Chicago, um, we moved around a lot. When he came to Chicago, he would take us to um, Comiskey Park, White Sox, to watch the White Sox and the Yankees play. We didn't go to any, we went to Yankee games in Chicago. Right. So that started a lifelong uh, passion for the White Sox. Wow. So I always say there's not six degrees of separation. There's only like two or three. So you, you have to know who Harold Baines is, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Harold Baines is from the Eastern Shore where I grew up. Harold Baines is um, his mom. His his parents went to school with my mom. Um, um, he's he's um, from St. Michael's, uh, and I uh, am from Salisbury. Uh, but he was a great, great basketball player, Tom. Not surprised. Great basketball. Definitely. Um, and he has moved back to St. Michael's. He had a heart transplant a couple of years ago. I know he got into the Hall of Fame, but he is, um, and again, I don't know Harold very well. You know, I, I met him, but my mom went to school with his parents, but it's such a small world. Yeah, I taught Lamar Johnson's kids. Lamar Johnson was in my parent-teacher conference. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a it is, that's, my, that's my big brush with greatness. <laughs> I know no, I you, and I know Lamar, I met Lamar Johnson. That's about it. I doubt that. Well, Tom, this has been great. I truly, truly um, appreciate you coming on. Um, at the end of every one of my you know, podcasts, my shows, I say this quote that I use at my dad's funeral uh, three years ago. As I go, I am wearing you. Um, that is an old African proverb. And again, it really talks about and speaks to what we've talked about today. How many people who have helped us along the way who I am wearing that have gotten me to this point? 
And, you know, as I leave today and as I have since I've met you, I am wearing Tom Meany. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's always, um, always a pleasure to talk with you. It's always, a, I miss you. I, yeah. I just, we don't get to talk as much anymore. And, uh, yeah. but uh, thank you um, for letting me just come on and go on and on about stuff. But uh, um, I love what you do and keep doing it. And uh, yeah, go on, keep on changing the world. Keep well, it up. Um, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, a conversation with Brian, and we will talk to you very soon. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on my YouTube channel and Spotify. <laughs>